I think the best writing is something you're telling people something they don't know, really, mm-hmm. or providing some insight and to knit it all together. If you can find that morsel of information or a bit of colour, that's what people want, and they want, want that insight and to feel they're there. You know, an old editor of mine said, let us smell the cologne or being in there, being in the room, and as much insight and as quotes you can get that bring something to life. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Hour. I'm your host, Adam Burnett, and with me, as always, is our producer, Samuel Ferris. Sammy, hello. Hello, Adam. Today, I am speaking with esteemed freelance sports writer, Sam Pilger, who, full disclosure, is an old friend of mine, despite his somewhat confusing English-Australian heritage. Now, Sam is an excellent writer, but he's also seasoned in the crafts of reporting and interviewing, and it's those skills that really shine through in his work. Hasn't Sam had a career, AB? Some of the names he drops are just enormous. The Copacabana story is brilliant and his chat with LeBron James makes me very, very jealous. Sam makes an interesting point how journalists used to be the conduits between athletes and the fans. But these days, if an athlete wants to share a message, they can just post it on their social media. But when you read the quality content Sam produces, you'll understand why journalists are still vital. Well... As I hope so, AB. Otherwise, you and I are out of a job. Yes, we covered some interesting terrain today, Sammy, from how the pandemic has affected the life of a freelancer through to how Sam, who writes about football primarily, but cricket and much more besides, has actually come to be known as something of a Manchester United expert. And in that theme, we talk about a fascinating piece he wrote on the great Cristiano Ronaldo, centred upon a time when no one actually knew who Cristiano Ronaldo was. And Sam also gives us some tips and tricks when it comes to getting some original material out of very famous sports people. He also talks about the athletic and he talks about family. You might recognize the surname he shares with a very famous Australian investigative journalist and that would be because that's his dad. So we've put up a link to the Ronaldo piece in the show notes and on Twitter. Yes, you should follow us on Twitter if you haven't already at the Writer's Hour all one word, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Writer's Hour wherever you get your podcast from. So it's a big thank you to Sam Pilger for his time, and now here he is. Sam, nice to have you on the show. Yeah, good to be here, Adam. Thanks for having me. We find you in London at the moment. How are things for a freelance journalist in the middle of a pandemic, a freelance sports journalist, particularly when there is no sport to cover? How, how are, have you been getting by? It's been difficult. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I'm kind of a bit sick of nostalgia pieces mm. or, uh, you know, talking about how the pandemic has affected sport. So, um, yeah, and as, as the freelancer, yeah, it has, has its challenges. I've, you know, I've lost some work and, and, and work has been put on pause and, and all sorts. But, yeah, hopefully we're, we're coming through the other side of that. Good to hear. Yeah, I imagine it's a pretty difficult industry at the moment, not only in, in terms of not having a lot to write about, but um, a lot of, particularly in Australia, and I know you've got one foot in both camps over the years, in a sense. You could yeah. maybe clarify that for us in, in terms of your where your allegiance is live. But um, yeah, I mean, in Australia, we've seen a lot of media shutting down, a lot of jobs going. Is it similar in the UK at the moment? I haven't seen too much, you know, closed down. I think, unfortunately, it'll probably accelerate you know magazines and print because there Mm. was a time where people were just literally not leaving the house so you know to pick up a newspaper to magazine you know the magazine racks do look a bit emptier in the supermarkets and news agents yeah no people put on being put on furlough here and so on there hasn't been i think i think that'll come though i think there'll be 
there'll be less jobs and less opportunities, which is, yeah, yeah, a great shame. Sam, you've probably, uh, you've known this in a lot of ways over the years anyway, in terms of, as you talk about magazines dying and the industry, of course, moving, I would imagine a very high percentage of your work would now be online. Yes. Yeah. It's funny how, how that happens. And, and the internet, the internet's not very old when the internet started, <laughs> but you know, this, this sort of dot com and online business and yeah i mean i think everyone looked down on it and and uh wasn't so much didn't think it would last but it was like you know the sort of upstart kid and you know newspapers magazines were the real uh, establishment and then yeah slowly but surely uh it, it swallowed us all really and and yeah the vast majority of my my work would be online now i still uh you know, I still love writing for magazines and as much as possible and, and newspapers. But yeah, the vast majority of work is online now. I was going to ask you this one later, but it seems um, apt at the moment. Um, I understand you did a bit of work for The Athletic in the US. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came about for you and what it has done to the landscape in the UK now? I mean, we've heard bits and pieces of The Athletic coming to Australia. Whether or not that's feasible remains to be seen. But yeah, I'm curious about that and your experiences with it. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, as a writer, I wrote, I had a weekly column largely on Manchester United and, and the Premier League for the Athletic when they were based in the, uh, when they were in the US. Um, so I think they launched in the US about three years ago. Uh, they launched in the UK a year ago. So actually, while they were still in the US and they had some Premier League content, I was writing a, um, a column. They were sort of staffed by freelancers like myself in the UK. So that that was a good gig and I was writing for the, the US. They then launched in the UK in August last year and sort of as a freelancer that actually had an impact on me where I stopped working for them really when they launched it because then they had a huge recruitment drive and staffed up their offices here with, with full-time staff members. So in fact, the, the main amount of freelancers who were working when they were based in the US sort of stopped there. And yeah, I mean, that that's fine. That happens. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to be a, a full-time staff member for the Athletic Care. So I enjoyed being a freelancer for them. And, and yeah, I had some discussions about maybe contributing as a freelancer here. I haven't yet. But their model, I mean, is a subscription model. It's there's no advertisements and uh, you know again as we talked about the online there was a bit of sniffiness because they recruited a lot of top top journalists uh, here they, they took a lot of people from the daily mail the times the guardian yeah they weren't messing about they weren't skirting around the edges you know i worked for another uh, bleach report when it was uh, when it launched as well and that was uh, very small uh, operation compared to what the athletic did but the truth is the quality of the stuff from the athletic has been a- absolutely brilliant not a day goes by where i don't read something or enjoy something from the athletic you know they've got great features news stories and yeah i mean i i was um i got a free subscription when i was uh, a columnist for them when they were based in u.s that ended and i and i you know i started paying for it i paid a subscription which was i think 40 50 pounds a year but Geez, I mean, for what I get for that, it's working. So I hope that model works. I really, I really hope that model works. Which leads me nicely onto my next question: Is Australia big enough, population-wise, for it to work here? Do you think? I think so. I mean, geez, you know, if you talk about sports-loving nations, there's not many bigger than than Australia. And, and obviously, when they launched here, they they got experts. I mean, what they did is a huge operation. They got one or two people, sometimes two, with the bigger clubs. So every Premier League club and every Championship club too. So that's that's twenty journalists on each Premier League club, and some some double up, some have a couple, the bigger ones. 
rounds and then 24 teams in the championship. So that's 44 just on team journalists. Plus, they have a lot of editors, a lot of writers that are across lots of lots of teams as well who aren't specialists. So, yeah, I don't know how it would work in Australia if you'd go all out and you'd have every, one for every AFL, one for every NRL, one for each um, state cricket side and, and obviously a lot across national cricket. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it, you know, obviously in the US, there's a huge operation there too, but I suppose it, the principle is the same. Are people prepared to pay for subscription-based journalism and geez i hope so because you know that's what pays journalist wages but also the quality is lacking if, if people aren't prepared and it, it, you know this, this is a bigger discussion but we just assume content is free you know we mm. click on something we assume it's free and if it's not we get annoyed oh they want us to register all this but there's never been more content but people are annoyed if they have to pay for it but unfortunately i do you know the, the research and time that goes into great pieces requires time effort and money makes sense to me uh, yeah <laughs> but, uh, you touched on it before sam um when you mentioned that you were doing some work for the athletic uh regarding manchester united i believe that takes us back to the origins of your journalism career can you tell us a little bit about where you started and and how it all began for you yeah absolutely i mean um my first job was as uh, as a staff writer on on the Manchester United magazine their their official club magazine which which then was the fourth biggest selling men's magazine in the UK it, it sold sometimes up to about 200,000 copies a month it was at a time where uh, yeah, it was at a time before online really got its act together, before social media, so no Twitter, no Facebook. You know, if you wanted to read about Manchester United, that's where you read. It was a monthly magazine you had to go to the news agent to buy. You know, the, the relentless, you know, no YouTube, nothing. Uh, you know, when I started in 1996, United didn't even have a, a website. You know, manunited.com only really got going about two years later. So um, I worked there for three and a half years interviewing, you know, David Beckham and Roy Keane and Ryan Giggs and Sir Alex Ferguson and George Best and Bobby Charles. And it was, it, for a United fan, geez, it, like myself, it was a it was a dream come true to start my career like that. And, you know, it coincided with some success and obviously the, the treble year of 99. I left when I didn't think it could get too much better when they played in the World Club Championship and my assignment was to go to Brazil <laughs> for 10 days in January during the British winter at a hotel on Copacabana Beach and I go and watch United and Vasco da Gama and great players like Romario in the um, in the American R each night. In fact, Vasco da Gama was staying in our hotel, so there was a couple of times I had to swim with Romario in in the pool. It was a rooftop pool overlooking Copacabana Beach. It really was United. <laughs> so it does it, it won't get much better than that. So I've been there for three and a half years, and just you know, as much as I love United, just interviewing United players and former players and managers by by then had probably uh, uh, served. So yeah, that was January. 2000 uh, I left and went to 442 the generic leading football magazine in the UK and across other countries but um, yeah that was my start it's fair to say even 20 years on it it still to a degree informs some of your work I mean you mentioned still being uh, an expert for the athletic um, with Manchester United in the US uh, I've seen you've done a lot of work for Forbes and, and Bleacher Report a lot of Manchester United based copy it's amazing that a club, one single club, it goes to show the size and, and the, the status of Manchester United that obviously you've done a lot of work in, in a lot of different fields over the years, but you've also been able to find a niche for yourself as a Manchester United expert, really? 
Yeah, I think that that has developed. I mean, the start of my career, that was my grounding. But then I, I, I kind of wanted to get away from that and, and do other sports and other, uh, as you know, I've done a lot of cricket and other football teams. But yeah, I mean, that is my love. I'm a United fan. Yeah. And so in terms of, you know, I can bring a lot of context and, and history and, and and insight to, to my work on United. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, I've, I've, I've still got good contacts and, and insight into United behind the scenes, and, and that helped. Uh, I do a lot of, I do some work for Optus as well uh, in Australia. They're the rights holders there now. So, you know, Optus do some great content in Australia on, on the Premier League, and I've written for them regularly during the season, especially on, on Manchester United. So, yeah, I, you know, especially online in terms of Twitter, um, you know, if I know some stuff with United or my features, you know, I think I've, you know, I've built up an online following of about 33,000 followers, a lot will be United fans. But yeah, I mean, I have written about, you know, I support United all my life, but I've written about United now for for 24 years. So yeah, I mean, that wasn't, I, I don't think I chose that, but naturally for my support and my insight on the club, I can provide that. That's what's happened in recent times, yeah. Journalism runs in the family for you, mate. Your um, your dad, some people may not know, is John Pilger, a very famous Australian journalist. People shouldn't be fooled by the accent either. Um, <laughs> I mean, how has your dad's career influenced yours, if at all? I would say absolutely. I, I, my 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 mother is a is a journalist as well, Australian and a journalist as well. So yeah, my parent, uh, my mum's from Melbourne, my dad's from Sydney. They came to UK, to London in, in the 1960s and met here. Um, so, yeah, my mum worked for the Sunday Express. It was a very powerful newspaper, sold about five million copies uh, every Sunday. My dad worked for the Daily Mirror. Um, so, yeah, journalism has been in the family. Uh, my mum's specialty was, was interviewing. And, uh, yeah, my dad was more of a foreign correspondent, went to war zones, interviewed, you know, interviewer as well, and then started making documentaries. So, yeah, coming from a journalist family, you know, with both my parents on, on Fleet Street, as it was then, famous Fleet Street, naturally, I sort of, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, well, I'd like to do, do that too. But then my sports was my passion. So I sort of married the two. And to be honest, I didn't fancy war zones. Or uh, <laughs> My dad spent a lot of time in Vietnam, in the Vietnam War when I was young and, and lots of war zones. And one of his things was uncovering the genocide in Cambodia. But yeah, I mean, he made his 60th documentary. They just went out in Australia as well on SBS. So he's been making documentaries for 50 years. First one was from the Vietnam War. So uh, yeah, I mean, he has inspired me. You know, he's, he's my dad, he's my hero. And, you know, I love him. And uh, his work has always been a source of great pride. Yeah, and in terms of what he taught me, I suppose, in, in, just as, a, as an example, really, you know, good, clear writing and don't use cliches and the basic. But yeah, you know, I suppose different, you know, sports and, and wars and politics are a bit different, but sometimes they overlap, yeah. Did you ever feel an itch to uh, move away from sports, Sam, as you matured with your writing or your experiences in life? No, not really. I know a few do. Not, not, not many, though. I mean, geez, we're... we're we are lucky, and I never take that for granted, being at the Lord's Test last summer at the Ashes or, you know, previously I've been to a Super Bowl. You know, I, I've never lost sight of how lucky we are as sports journalists to be there on in the front row and have some of the best seats. And, uh, yeah, I, me- I remember at the Super Bowl, the one I went to was in Jacksonville in 2005. It's the first and only time I think it's been in Jacksonville. So it's not seen as one of the, the cool, desirable cities. Normally it's Miami or New Orleans or San Diego. So I remember hearing a people, couple of people in the line in front of me 
complaining that it was in Jacksonville, picking up their credentials, their press passes, and then complaining, oh, you know, Jacksonville. And I was just like, what? You know, <laughs> here I was. It was Florida. It was January. I'd escaped the British winter and, and the Super Bowl. Paul McCartney was doing the halftime show and, and uh, it was the it was the Patriots-Eagles, so it was Tom Brady. Yeah, it was, it was great. So, yeah, no, I mean, that's not to say I don't gripe and people don't mind, but, yeah, I, I've always realised how, uh, how lucky I am. As you mentioned, your dad is still very much fighting the good fight. Does that involve itself in conversations with you guys? It seems as though it's as much a lifestyle or life commitment as a job for him. Do you guys discuss it? And has he ever tried to uh, shift you over, get him to join you in, in the political activism <laughs> space? No, 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 he hasn't. I mean, at all, really. You know, he's always been, yeah, proud of my, my stuff in sport. And he, he, he loves his sports as well. He grew up in Sydney and went to school opposite the SCG. And rowing was more his, his thing. But, yeah, he's interviewed sports people over the years. And, okay. uh, yeah, not as much. My mum interviewed a lot more for the, for the Sunday Express. Uh, a lot of sports sports people, but yeah, I remember yeah, my dad interviewing Bobby Moore, England's World Cup winning captain, um, in a car round the corner from Upton Park for the Daily Mirror in the sixties. But so he's done a little bit of sport too. Yeah, no, he's never never suggested. He sees that that's my passion and 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 my thing. So yeah, he's never never sought to change that. Given the current climate, Sam, I wanted to ask you as an experienced freelance writer, is it a career that you strongly recommend at the moment? I mean, do you have optimism? <laughs> I mean, look, it's funny. My my son is 15 next month. So, you know, not too far away from choosing a career. And, he, you know, he, he loves football. Sometimes he knows more about sport and, and football than, than me, frankly. But, you know, and obviously... He, he's sort of interested so it, it has a personal angle to this too but you know yeah I would never suggest to him or to anyone not to go for it uh yeah it does seem things become harder as you as you go along in terms of access and in terms of making a living from it freelance sports journalism it is possible I wouldn't shy anybody away from it I think the fact that I for the first five six years of my career you know I was on staff and then went freelance and I went freelance you know, nearly 20 years ago now, 19 years ago, at a time where it was more rare. I mean, I think the truth is now, if you post a blog and nobody reads it, you can put, you know, in there on Twitter, bio, football writer, you know, you posted one blog, no one's read, but you're a football writer. So unfortunately, the title has been devalued a bit, a lot, frankly, you know, if you're a football writer before you've had to attended games and traveled the world and interviewed leading footballers or sports people. And now, Anybody can have a go. But then that makes it good too. And you've seen a lot of people come through that route that they start with blogs and and they get picked up and they have a following. So I suppose the cliche, you know, if you're good enough, then that's a route through. So in many ways, it's harder because the competition is huge and there's so much and there's less opportunities. But then in many ways, it's easier because the gatekeepers aren't there. You don't need for a, an editor to say, yes, we approve. We open the gate for you. If you post a, a blog, a start a Twitter following, then hopefully that leads to paid work. And I know for a lot of people it has. So, um, you know, if you're good, if you're sharp, if you can write, if you've got good ideas, then it's still possible. So I don't want to sound like, you know, put people off because, you know, writing about sport and following it and having people interested in what you've got to say about sport, it's, it's a great position to be in. What's your pieces of advice for young aspiring freelancers? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I mean, read, 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 you know, uh, read as much as you're right, really, because, you know, read other people's stuff, ideas, just how, you, uh, you know, words, how you structure paragraphs, intros, 
just read as much as possible. You, you know, nobody becomes worse from practice. So I, I'd suggest that a lot of reading and that, and that's so much easier now with, with online, you know, you can read anything from Australia, the US, Europe, the UK, it's all there at your fingertips. So there's no excuse not to gather a lot of writers and read in terms of, of a, of a freelance. I, I suppose it, it's have an area of expertise and pitch and pitch good ideas and you know have some insight offer something new and don't don't be downcast you know everybody gets turned down with ideas and everybody has their emails ignored and you talked about my dad earlier he's had his email ignored you know (laughs) I have too and I'm sure most people have but don't be downcast and and keep going and keep being persistent you mentioned earlier the idea of having a blog online can cut both ways, but is, is that the sort of ways and means of getting a foot in the door these days? Even if it, it's self-published, you have to provide evidence of, of work. How are people best placed to begin? Well, you know, you've got you to gotta hone your talent and I wouldn't suggest you have to go to university or, but you know, you need to study and you need to, to hone your talent, whether that's, you know, that's, that's, as I said before, the simple things of reading a lot and writing a lot. And even if it's just your own practice, just write as much as possible. You know, a friend of my son's cup a year or so ago sent me something he'd written. He was a Crystal Palace fan. And, um, you know, he was only about 13 or 14, but, you know, it had some potential and I gave some pointers about, it and that's it. I mean, that's what I used to do. I used to watch match of the day here or and write a match report on a game I'd seen on the TV when I was twelve or thirteen. And so I would say you've got to be able to to write well. And then it's coming up with ideas. A blog, that's where you're going to practice and get better at writing. And if you're good and you say the interesting things and people want to follow, that that'll happen. So I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I didn't want to be dismissive of it earlier. There are a lot of people that that started off that way and, and got their break. So I, I think if you're writing good original copy, then then go for it. You've written uh, across the US, the UK, Australia, different publications in all three countries. Any noticeable differences between the three in terms of, I guess, practicalities for journalists, but also the way you have to write, Sam? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think too much different. I mean, obviously in the US, they're quite big on fact-checking, but I mean, you should do that yourself anyway, you know, and check and recheck a statistic. There's always something you sort of catch. So check and recheck and a couple of sources. So they're big on the fact-check in the US. No, not really. I mean, for the US, I've I've written a bit of basketball, as you mentioned before, like LeBron James or, or, and a lot of, you know, English football for there in Australia, a lot of, again, British football and various sports, but a lot of cricket. But no, I don't think there's a huge, a huge difference. I haven't, I haven't found. Yeah, you know, good, clear, insightful writing crosses boundaries, borders. Absolutely. Tell us how the LeBron piece came about. <laughs> well, I have to say, I can't. Uh, you know, sometimes you spend a lot of time chasing things. This one fell in my lap. I've, I've got to be honest. It was, a, it was through Nike. His, his sponsors. They offered me a trip to the US to Akron, where he's from, Cleveland and Akron. He was playing for the Cavs. It was the first time he was playing for the Cavs. Yeah, and we went over there and went to his old high school and met his old high school coach and and uh, got a bit of background. They were launching a new shoe, a new LeBron Nike basketball shoe. Um, so that was nice to get some color. But I actually interviewed him in, actually, he was there. Yeah, he was there in Akron. And we, we played with, yeah, we played basketball with him in his old high school gym. So that that was quite special, you know. I remember standing sort of beneath the rim as he slammed it down and thinking, wow, you know, he, he was quite he was quite something. But then actually I interviewed him when he came to London. Then he came to London and I had half an hour with him 
yeah, driving through the streets. So we actually did it on a bus while he's driving through the streets of London. He was fantastic. He was a really great guy. So I'm great to see him since then winning NBA titles and, and using his voice and his platform as he has. He was great. So yeah, no, that, that, that was a good one to have done. And, I, you know, for, in terms of NBA, you know, God, Kobe Bryant died recently. I spoke to him in a locker room in, in Chicago when I went over and did a piece about a, uh, a British basketball player called uh, Luol Deng who had just signed for the Chicago Bulls. So yeah, I spoke to Kobe then and and uh, Shaquille O'Neal they were playing the Heat and uh, so yeah I mean the NBA, NBA I've loved I've loved doing US sports just the access is just mm. incredible because you know how did I speak to Kobe Bryant well I just walked up to him in the locker room you know mm. as simple as that and yeah the access you get in the NBA the NFL is, is incredible and for a British journalist it was just like being in, in Disneyland because literally the game would finish and you'd walk into the locker room while these guys were semi-naked getting out of the shower drying themselves down you know 10 minutes after the buzzer the, the locker room door would open and you'd walk in and you could talk to who you like be it Kobe Bryant Shaquille O'Neal LeBron James um, you know anybody so um, they were fun to do the access is incredible the Premier League would never let anything I know even I know that with the restart now the TV companies try to push their push not push their luck try to ask for a bit more access and one thing they wanted was this was just the TV though not written journalists was a bit more dressing room but no they didn't get that even in these times where football needs broadcasters more than ever so yeah the, the US is is the relationship between the media and the, the sports there is like we're all working towards the same aim you know we provide the product but you promote it Whereas it's too much of a them and us situation here. There's too many barriers here. So, um, yeah, it's, it's fun covering sports in the US. Yeah, definitely. Now, people listening probably want to know, Sam, how on earth you're getting flown here and there to interview these, these superstar sports people. As we've discussed, you're a long-established sports writer. Is it about maintaining contacts along the way, developing connections? Can you explain why these things happen to pop up for you? <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose, uh, I mean, for, for that LeBron James thing, Nike came to me and I actually placed the interview in Esquire in the end and, and several uh, other magazines. Actually, I, I sold it to Alpha, Alpha magazine in the in, uh, in Australia, which is no longer around, uh, and a few other places. So sometimes when you've got something, you can sell it off. Um, the truth is, yeah, I mean, relationships are important, but the truth is, especially in more modern times. I mean, you know, LeBron there was promoting a shoe. It's about people having stuff to promote. I mean, I've interviewed Shane Warne several times, but almost always when he's promoting something, a book or something else. So, you you have to play the game. You have to play the game. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think now if you phoned up Shane and said, oh, you know, you've got half an hour for a chat, he'd, he'd think, well, you know, and I'm not saying that's specific to him, but a lot of them, what's in it for me or why, you know, they might ask for a fee or, or something. Whereas, you know, if they're promoting something, you play the game, be it books or, or shoes or, or something. But yeah, I, I think funnily enough, I think access has become less and less. I think there are players that just never, very, very rarely do interviews uh, now, you know, in terms of a one-on-one sit-down interview. There are some players in the Premier League that would literally never do them, although we feel like they do because of social media and obviously Twitter and Instagram, they have direct access to their fans. I look back with a lot of, you know, I feel I'm lucky looking back that I did so many interviews because I think interviews are becoming a dying art now. I think they are less and less. We were the conduit. Now they don't need to. You know, if they want to say something, they put it on their Instagram or, or, or Twitter. Putting you on the spot a little bit here, but are there any current Manchester United players or 
even players outside of United in the Premier League who you would love to sit down with for half an hour and anyone strikes you as potentially good conversation who you haven't spoken to? I only spoke to him briefly years ago and, and not for a wide ear interview would be, I think Cristiano Ronaldo would be, would, would be fascinating, you know, his career. And, and whereas Messi is, Lionel Messi has obviously kept his head down and played a bit of a, you know, a bit of poker face in a straighter game. Ronaldo obviously has a lot more, lot more out there character. Plus, you know, he's played in Portugal and England and Spain and now uh, Italy. Yeah. And obviously he's quite, quite full of himself too and has that ego. Which, which you know makes for for good copy. So he he would be good. I mean, of of, of the current, you know, you mentioned Manchester United. You know, I think Marcus Rashford is really developing to a. You know, I sound like an old guy, but a fine young man he really is. I mean, you know, I wrote about the, the thing he done to help feed kids who were losing out on free school meals during the pandemic and the lockdown here in England. You know, he could have sat there back on his sofa and played computer games and watched box sets, but he, he raised awareness of this, feeding kids. And so he, you know, I think he's only 22. So I think he's going to be even more interesting character to watch develop over the years, both on, on and off the pitch. Yeah. You mentioned Ronaldo. Uh, he is one man I want to talk to you about more, despite the fact that, as you say, you haven't spoken to him for a particularly long period of time. You haven't had a, a deep and meaningful with him, if you like. There was this Bleacher Report piece that you wrote, Sam, um, I think two and a half years ago or so now that I imagine did a uh, hell of a lot of traffic. It's a fantastic piece. I wanted to dive into it with you now. It's specifically the night Manchester United signed Ronaldo, who was 17, 18 years old, maybe. Before that, he was basically an unknown. Now, a piece like that, Sam, did you have the idea for that piece in your mind for, for a long time or was it? did someone come to you with it? How did it unfold? I think in truth, yeah, I'd like to claim the idea. I mean, I suppose it's quite an obvious idea. I think the guys at Bleacher at the time su- suggested it and, it, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a great piece. I mean, some of that time is the legwork in finding the guys mm. to, to speak to. So mm. you think, well, who was there? Who was the witness? Who was there? who's going to provide some real insight. So, so you look down both team sheets and, and obviously my Portuguese isn't great. So talking to <laughs> Portuguese players at Sporting wasn't, wasn't really possible. But, I, you know, I managed to speak to about three or four United players who were there that night, be it in the dressing room, on the pitch, coming up against him. Guys who aren't playing anymore, like Mark Lynch, I think, was one of them. Only played for United a couple of times. Mikhail Silvestre obviously played for United for, for 10 years and for Arsenal. Uh, so I spoke to him. And just a lot of people who come up against him and the story of, I mean, it was like an audition, really. I mean, it would be nice if it was just that night and this, this kid came from nowhere. But, you know, United were, I mean, the scouting networks then even 17 years ago were such that United had heard about him. Um, and United's uh, assistant manager, Carlos Quiroz, who was Portuguese, had heard about him, uh, about the, this kid coming through. You know, I don't think there's any many surprises, especially now, of, of young players. But I think, I think where the, it's a great story was it was an audition. He'd been very close to signing to, for Arsenal. He'd actually had a tour of Arsenal, very close to signing for Arsenal. It hadn't quite happened. But United were aware and interested about him. And yeah, as I said, it, it sort of took the role of an audition because he, he really turned it on. And the players hadn't heard of him. United, you know, guys behind the scene, but the players hadn't heard of him. And that was it. And there was just some, some gawky kid 
or his strange hair and because and he, he had a sort of crispy bit at the front of his hair and, you know, a bit of acne and, and they hadn't heard of him. You know, obviously the name stands out at the time when Ronaldo meant the Brazilian Ronaldo. But yeah, you know, they, they had no idea what they were coming up against. So the story was, and it was true, that United did say, oh God, we've got to sign him. We've got to sign him afterwards, boss. And they did the deal that night, really. Kind of, they said, right, we're not leaving Portugal until um, until we, we've got this all all done. And, you know, the players were on the coach waiting for uh, the manager and he was delayed there doing the deal. So, yeah, and that was a good story. And just thinking, well, what he's achieved since, you know, that that's how it happened, you know. I mean, he was such a great player, even if he'd had a bad night that night. But, but it certainly... It's a nice story and a sort of part of his legend. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned a few elements of the story there, Sam, um, that were particularly interesting, I thought. The, the fact that the players didn't know certainly added to the piece. Uh, they didn't know about this young kid who, behind the scenes, the club had been scouting. You also mentioned that there were scouts from Barcelona, uh, Real Madrid, Arsenal had been looking to do a deal with him. So there was a lot hinging on this. And um, the fact that he then delivered to the point that you had guys on the bench, superstars on the bench for United, you know, shaking their head at this teenager's skill, um, I thought really painted quite a picture. I just want to start from the beginning, though. I'll, I'll read the introduction. In the bowels of the brand new Jose Alvalade Stadium on a hot night in August 2003, so Alex Ferguson was finishing his pre-match talk to his Manchester United players about what to expect in their pre-season friendly against Sporting. At the end of his speech, Ferguson nonchalantly added, Oh, lads, and one final thing, they have a talented young winger. Look out for him, okay? He's strong and agile. He's quite good. And that was it. Former United defender Mark Lynch recalled. Lynch would come on in the second half. No big warning. No time spent on him. Just a few words. Almost as if Sir Alex wanted to shock us. The talented <laughs> young winger was Cristiano Ronaldo. Over the next 90 minutes, he would have the game of his life, earning himself a move to Manchester United within a matter of days. Now, uh, you know I'm a, a big football fan, so you, you had me early, but I think any sports <laughs> fan you, you would have really had compelled to read on there sets the scene really nicely. You mentioned you hadn't interviewed Ronaldo a lot over the years. Had you written much about him? Yeah, no, I, I mean, God, yeah, you, it's pretty difficult not to write. I mean, yeah. I probably write a couple of times a week, so I've, I've written about him a lot. And uh, yeah, I mean, I love the story that, that had that element because, yeah, as you said, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd forgotten the intro, but the intro was that Ferguson knew about him, of course. Mm. He knew about him, but he didn't, he wanted almost, because it was a friendly, he kind of didn't want to shut him down. He wanted to let the boy play. He wanted to see how good he could be, but he also wanted to see what his team would do rather than prepare them. Mm. So weeks later, he made his debut for United at Old Trafford against Bolton and his legend began. So Ferguson there was brilliant management. He was he was playing the long game thinking, well, it benefits me if he has a great game that night rather than me getting my players to stop him. Yeah, any any piece, as you say, if that draws you in, that's great. I've done my job. But yeah, any if you can find that that morsel, that moment that sort of symbolizes the piece and offers you more than that, that, that you're doing your job. In a piece like this, Sam, do you even try to speak to Ronaldo or is there no point? I mean, are you confident enough that this piece works without his input? Look, the truth is if you could speak to him, you would, but you're going to, I suppose if you don't ask, you don't get, and that's a good rule. But in this thing, I, I think it was more of the witnesses really and, and the insight that they could add. It was mm. about him, but it was about people's reactions to him and his rise. So. Um, yeah, look, I'm not going to pretend if I could speak to him, it would have been great to, to have his voice in it as well. 
but I do think that it was the sort of witnesses of the night and the behind the, the sort of inside story of, of how he came to, to sign and, and speaking to people about what they knew of him before and, and, and what since, yeah. It is a simple idea, tracing the beginnings of a legend, having it told through the eyes of the people who were there, but it's an, it's an effective one. Uh, along the way, do, do you work out who to target for quotes? Uh, Sylvester, as you mentioned, a very experienced Manchester United player. Had you spoken with him previously and did you know that, okay, yeah, I should chase him because he'll be good for a line, for example? Yeah, I, I suppose you never really know. Sometimes, you know, as, as you, you know yourself, sometimes you think, well, they were there and sometimes they don't have a good memory and they mm. can be a bit dull. And, and then, you know, the guy, Mark Lind, who's now a fitness instructor and didn't have a, a huge career, you know, and it's also people who people who don't have a vested interest, you know, even though Ronaldo's still playing, sportsmen can be very precious and not want to, you know, reveal too much even now. And so a guy like Mark, who was a fitness instructor now, he, he was just, it's a great story for him that, you know, he came up against, <laughs> yeah. against Ronaldo. But yeah, I, I think, I mean, I did one similar on Deli Alley, the, the Tottenham and England player, because he had a different route through because he played for MK Dons in the lower leagues before he went to Tottenham. So he didn't have the superstar lifestyle growing up as a prodigy. He had played in the lower league before, you know, really making it for Tottenham and, and England, which is quite rare these days, really. So yeah, that, uh, that was a similar piece. And, and I remember talking to a guy his first ever coach, the guy who found him, uh, I can't remember his name now off the top of my head, but I remember Delhi when he was eight or nine, walked up to him and sort of, he was a manager of an under nines team. Delhi Ali pulled him by the cuff and said, oh, can I play? Can I play? And he said, oh, look, I'm really sorry. You've got to be registered. You know, I mean, I manage my son's under 15 team. So, you know, you have to be a registered, you have to have your ID card. You can't just walk onto the pitch and, and get a ring. He said, look, I'm really sorry. You, you can't play. He has to be registered. And he went, oh, please, please, I'm, I'm quite good. I'm quite good. He went, well, look, come along to training on Thursday. We'll see. You know, so Delhi comes along to training on Thursday. And, you know, and, and, and the guy says, geez, as soon as he touched the ball, I knew, wow, what a player. And so when, you know, you finished the piece, that started the piece, and you finished the piece with this guy who met Delhi Ali when he was eight, nine, watching him in playing against Real Madrid at Wembley in front of 80,000, <laughs> yeah. the crowd singing his name. And it's it's just, that's, that's that lovely journey. So, yeah, you know, for a guy like that who who was a who's a PE teacher now, having his insight is worth a lot more than a, a more famous name can be. That's a really good lesson right there. Uh, uh, what about the extreme other end, Sam? I mean, the LeBrons, the Beckhams, the Warns. If, if you do want them to go beyond their usual cliches, which I'm sure you know they would be quick to sprout um, when they're doing a book tour or whatever it is they may be doing. What's the key to trying to get them to talk about things? Yeah, beyond the the very basic. I think it's research, really. I think it's really doing your research, not just rocking up and, you know, firing a few few questions. It's really looking what they've said before and thinking if you can extrapolate it or get them to expand on that. Sometimes, you know, if you quote things other people have said to them and that can fire them up. You know, I remember quoting an unfavorable quote by John Buchanan to Michael Clark uh, before he was captain saying he didn't think he should be. You know, it, it sort of draws something out of them, you know, a reaction. You're not saying it. You know, a lot of the time, you know, we can be looked down on the sports writers and like, oh, well, what do you know? But if you can quote somebody who does know this stuff, this is not your judgment. You're saying, well, look, this guy said this, be it praise or, or criticism. That can be good. It's research. You know, the best interviews I've done, you've, you've spent 
days, days and days really going back into the archives and quotes and books and so on to find good stuff. It can be your manner. Obviously, if you've got more incendiary questions, you leave them to later, you warm them up, an icebreaker, and you, you get into it slowly. And yeah, I, I mean, you know, you get back what you put into it, really, in, in terms of your research with, with the bigger name players, absolutely. I think you did that even with this Bleacher Report Ronaldo piece. There's a lot of great detail around what was happening at Manchester United at the time in terms of them establishing a relationship with Ronaldo and Sporting Lisbon and also in terms of how sought after a 17-year-old Ronaldo was, as I said before, about all those clubs hounding him. Is that what you're talking about, collating info but also using your sources to, to gather that kind of info as well? Yeah, I think the best writing is something you're telling people something they don't know, really, mm-hmm. or, or, or providing some insight and to knit it all together rather than telling something that's quite commonly known. If you can find that morsel of information or a bit of colour, that's what people want and they want, want that insight and to feel they're there. You know, an old editor of mine said, let us smell the cologne of, of sort of... Uh, being in there, being in the room and as much insight and as quotes you can get that bring something to life. There's a really good example of that in this piece where you say, this is post-Matt, for the first time many of those Bleacher reports spoke with could remember United players proceeded to badger Ferguson to sign an opposing player and then quote, Phil Neville came straight off the pitch and walked up to Sir Alex in the dressing room, Sylvester said, boss, you have to sign him. You just have to. So Alex just said, okay, okay, don't worry. We're going to get it sorted. I mean, that's a, just an unbelievable quote about a 17-year-old kid who they've seen once. Uh, and then yeah. the story goes that they ended up spending an hour waiting on the coach because Ferguson was doing exactly that. He had said that he, he wouldn't be leaving the stadium until he had signed Ronaldo. It's a hell of a story. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I mean, he didn't sign a contract immediately after the game, but it was mm-hmm. done and dusted. I think he flew to Manchester two days later and signed. Yeah, but that's what we all want as writers and as fans, that insight into the dress singer. And, this, mm. you know, we say, as I talked earlier, in the locker rooms in, a, in America are a bit more open. But in cricket, as you know, they talk about the rooms and most sports, the dressing room is this, this sacred place. So if you can be a, a fly on the wall there and you can hear what players are saying and, and, and you know, and it's as simple as players saying, boss, you need to sign this player, which is very rare, wouldn't happen often. Then, that, yeah, that makes it great. And that's what I like to write about. But it's what I'd love to read stories like that that give you that insight. For sure, for sure. You mentioned earlier that he debuted a short time later. You've written here, 10 days after playing for Sporting against United, Ronaldo would make his debut at Old Trafford on the opening day of the new Premier League season. Came on as a substitute, impressed as United beat Bolton 4-0. In the stands, you've got a quote from a... Veteran of the press box here who who simply said, I've not seen a debut like that since George Best, who was another Manchester United legend. How did you come across that line? Is that Stuart Matheson? I think veteran Manchester Evening News reporter Stuart Matheson remembers Tom right. Tyrrell yeah, yeah. saying. Oh, Tom Tyrrell. Yeah, that's right. Tom would have said that to Stuart. Tom uh, is no longer alive. Stuart very much is, but but Tom isn't. Tom is a lovely, lovely old school United reporter that I worked with towards the end of his career, obviously. And, you know, sometimes, you know, interviewing other writers is not a bad thing. Sometimes we can be a bit sniffy about them because we just want to write about ourselves and get our own stuff. But, you know, they're witnesses, misses too, and it's about that. And, you know, if somebody has seen all, you know, has seen 40 years of Manchester United to be able to say the best debut since George Best is, is a great quote. So Tom turned to Stuart and said that, it, you know, it's just being there. It's being there, you know, it's that one moment in time. Yeah, so that just shows you the the impact he had. 
Did you have that one in the back pocket, Sam? I mean, you're writing about it 15 years after the fact. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't at that game. Uh, that was the opening day of the season against Bolton, 2003-04 season. can't remember Tom saying that to me himself. He must have said that to Stuart. And then I spoke to Stuart. So Stuart right. was one of the guys I spoke to, yeah, who was in the press box at Old Trafford that day. So that was nice to get that little bit of, you know, that, that quote from him. Yeah, it pays to uh, speak to as many people as you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. I also wanted to talk to you, Sam, about copywriting, which is a new one for this podcast, but um, it's also been a way in which you've managed to um, sustain yourself as a writer. Can you tell me a little bit about that, how you got into it, and yeah, whether you uh, recommend it for other young aspiring journalists? Yeah, I mean, it's just I got into it through sports. I, I did a lot of copywriting for Nike and, and sports brands. You know, they'd come to me and see my work and, and asked me to write about their products and brands. So I've done that over many years. I mean, I I even wrote the scripts for the EA um, FIFA games m- many years ago. I, I haven't since. Uh, they're getting more and more popular. God, my son is uh, is addicted <laughs> to them. But uh, So that was, the, I mean, script writing, if you like, on the side, writing, writing the commentary that goes with the games. Um, but yeah, writing about products, new kits, new launches, new kits, football boots, boots. So it's writing about sport in a sense, but it's, you're selling things. It's, it's different for copywriting. It's obviously you're, you're selling things for brands. So yeah, I've written for brands over the years, be it recently, you know, New Balance or, or Nike or Wimbledon, the Wimbledon Tennis Championships. I did some of their marketing, copywriting for last, last summer and for, uh, for writing about a new Barcelona or Manchester United Brazil kit and you know and then from there it doesn't always have to be about sport I wrote about for other brands so um, yeah and, and I would say look as a freelancer it's a simple matter of work and yeah as you say sustaining yourself and yeah I would I would recommend it as uh, something to do on on the side as, as well as as your sports writing. Do you still love the work, Sam? You mentioned earlier with regards to reading The Athletic a lot. Uh, are there some writers there who inspire you to to continue reaching the heights that you have reached in years gone by? Yeah, I, I still love it. As I think I said earlier, I, you know, people say, you know, choosing a career, do something you love, you know, that do your, do your hobby as a, as a job, you know, something you're going to enjoy. It's not a chore and to write about sports and to interview and to meet people and, and, and it's been an absolute pleasure so I still enjoy it yeah we've talked about the obstacles and the, and, and the, the difficulties and here we are in a lockdown for a pandemic and, and that came from nowhere so yeah that some things can be be difficult but yeah I, I still absolutely love it uh, I interviewed uh, my first footballer 20 24 years ago and uh, yeah I've loved it ever since yeah are there any writers uh, who have inspired you across the years or continue to inspire you today? Inspiring in the sense of that, you know, they're great to read and their turn of phrase or how they bring something to life. Well, when I started and, we, and I got to know him as a, as a friend was Paul Hayward when the, uh, he was on the Telegraph. Then he's now on the Telegraph. He's since, he moved from the Garden to the Athletic about Brian Clough, the old Nottingham Forest manager who effectively had adopted these two boys he met on the street. It was an amazing story. It had never come out before. It was the sort of story that I that I shared, you know, widely to my son or my mother-in-law and just because it, it transcended football. It was an amazing tale. And I, you know, told Daniel that himself. So yeah, you know, any good writing in, in, inspires me. But those couple of guys of stuff I've enjoyed over, over the years. Okay. And I can't let you go without asking our, uh, our weekly hypothetical, which is dead or alive. Oh, yeah. Who would you love to sit down and interview and then write about in depth? 
Well, I'm, you know, I, if somebody said this already, I hate to be a cliche, but Muhammad Ali. The thing is, we talked about access in terms of, you know, the stories of reporters knocking on his door after he's done eight hours of training and thinking there's no chance. And he sits down and has a two hour interview with them. Colin Hart, an old report for the Sun boxing writer. You just think that would never happen now in a million years, you know. Uh, so the access made him more of a personable and, and charming figure. But yeah, I mean, some of the great sports writing has been about Muhammad Ali. Thomas Hauser's book is absolutely brilliant and the stories around him. But also, you know, the thought, the principal nature that he, you know, he gave up his belts for a refusal to fight in the Vietnam War. You know, we're seeing that now with the career of Colin Kaepernick, who obviously gave up his career in the, in the NFL. And I hope there's still time for him to get it back for what he believed in. But, you know, Muhammad Ali is now this deity worshipped by all. But, you know, he obviously was hated and despised for, for, for that, for refusing to conscript and fight in Vietnam. But uh, he wouldn't do it. And he, you know, he came back. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of he's been shared on social media with all the events happening in, in the US at the moment. And, uh, you know, just such an inspiring figure. And there hasn't been anybody like him before or, or since, really. And maybe a sportsman, and uh, I think Kaepernick has come close to it, will, will emerge that, that can really, uh, you know, elevate himself beyond the sport. But yeah, God, that would be something to sit down with Muhammad Ali. Excellent, Sam. Well, we've enjoyed plenty of your writing too. And um, thanks for talking us through some of it tonight. And thank you very much for being a guest on The Writer's Hour. That's my pleasure. Cheers.